Hey, Rockheads. If you haven't already checked out Music to Code By, you really should, especially if you need to focus on anything, like programming. But it's not just good for programming. It's also great for kids doing homework. It's great for reading, great for writing, anything that requires your concentration. The results speak for themselves. I've got hundreds of satisfied customers. Go check out their comments at mtcb.pwop.com. That's mtcb.pwop.com. .NET Rocks, episode 1205, with guest Craig McKeechee. Recorded Wednesday, September 30th, 2015. And that is how The Martian became a movie. <laughs> <laughs> Now you're doing crazy time-shifting things uh, Well, here. we are recording this the day. And welcome to .NET Rocks, by the way. I'm Carl Franklin. I'm Richard Campbell. Uh, this is the day that The Martian comes out in in, in theaters. It's October 2nd. This right. is when we recorded this show. Of then course, we're going to publish this show the week before we actually publish The Geek Out, where we're going to talk about the show. Yeah. So it's an, <laughs> it's an exciting day for It's all time-shifty. Uh, yeah. Well, that's the way it goes with podcasts, isn't yep. it? Yep. So, uh, what you been up to, Mr. Campbell? Uh, apparently, I'm going to The Martian. Yeah, me too. That's funny. Are you seeing the 3D version of it or the 2D? Yeah, I think there's only 3D going on right now. So, yeah, I'm going to see the 3D version and uh, take taking lots of notes. And, you know, I'm going to try my best to enjoy it, but also to talk about the technical parts of it. Well, interestingly, the theater that I booked a ticket at has two showings. One is in 3D and one is not. Oh, so nice. They must have a 2D version of it, but... You know, when I when I asked uh, my wife if she wanted to see it, the you know, with me and stuff, she, 3D. Oh my God, I'm gonna get sick. You now know? there is a company making 2D glasses for 3D films. That's cool. So all it is is the same polarization on both lenses, so you only see one of the frames, but it blocks the other one. So if you don't like 3D effects, just wear the 2D glasses. Wow, that's very interesting. Isn't that brilliant. It's brilliant indeed. So I wonder if they will have an option for you. That's a, oh. I don't know if the theater will have it, but it might be a pair that, for people who don't like 3D, get those. Yeah, if there's only a 3D show available. All right, well, anyway, let's roll a crazy uh, music, because I got something appropriate for oh. today's show. Okay. All right, buddy, what do you got? So it's kismet that I picked this, because... Um, in the notes, Craig uh, also refers to it, uh, but I don't mind stealing his thunder a little bit. It's just <laughs> one little piece of the show, and in fact, just one little side note. So if you go to tinyurl.com slash ASPNetWebHooks, kind of reminds me of Zapier.com. It's basically um, uh, a way to have a sort of a pub-sub system for oh, yeah. APIs. So let me just read uh, what it says here and what the, you need to take away. It's a webhooks is a lightweight HTTP pattern providing a simple pub sub model for wiring together web APIs and software as a service services. When an event happens in a service, a notification is sent in the form of an HTTP post request to registered subscribers. The post request contains information about the event 
which makes it possible for the receiver to act accordingly. Okay. Because of their simplicity, webhooks are already exposed by a large number of services, including Dropbox, GitHub, Instagram, MailChimp, PayPal, Slack, Trello, and many more. For example, a webhook can indicate that a file has changed in Dropbox, or a code change has been committed in GitHub, or a payment has been initiated in PayPal, or a card has been created in Trello. The possibilities are endless. So on the receiving side, it provides a common model for receiving and processing webhooks from any number of providers. Out of the box, as I said, Dropbox, GitHub, Instagram, MailChimp, PayPal, also Pusher, Salesforce, Slack, Stripe, WordPress, Trello. Easy to add support for more. On the sending side, it provides support for managing and storing subscriptions as well as for sending event notifications to the right set of subscribers. So it allows you to find your own set of events that subscribers can subscribe to and notify them when things happen. So it does sort of remind me of that Zapier thing where you have things that happen and then things that you want to do when that happens, right? Right. You just sort of wire them up. This is an idea that we I was talking about a long time ago, like an idea I called cause and effect. But, you know, when we talked about it, it's like, oh, geez, that's like a big can of worms. And it was a big can of worms back then. But everybody's API'd to death now, <laughs> you know? And it's just a matter of subscribing to one thing and publishing it in another place where other subscribers can subscribe. Yeah, it's a pub-sub system and uh, clearly built for a SaaS world. You'd think this would show up in Azure rather than just uh, ASP.NET. Well, of course, I'm sure it is in Azure. Um, Of course, it's in ASP.NET, so it's automatically in Azure. But I'm not sure exactly what what Azure is doing for it. Maybe maybe Craig will know, but we'll see. Anyway, that's what... uh, that's what I got. Cool, man. Tinyurl.com slash ASP.NET webhooks. Who's talking to us, man? Grabbed a comment off of show 1157, the one we did with Troy Hunt, where we talked about passwords and SQL injection, data security, and so forth, which, oh, yeah. as okay. usual, generates a tremendous number of comments. Oh, yeah. Just, just a huge, huge long list of talking points and all over the map. Uh, I wanted to grab this one particular comment from John Corner, who said, Great show, guys. The fact that SQL injection keeps appearing as the number one vulnerability in web applications just shows how young our industry is. Mm. We haven't gotten to the point where we are really learning from our past mistakes. If it is true that the number of programmers is doubling every five years, and I actually think it's more often than that, Mm, then we are going to continue to see these basic issues until tools can prevent these issues from happening. Yep. While it is great that there are tools to help catch SQL injection on existing sites, we need to get to a point where the code will not even compile. Yeah. I know it's not an easy problem to solve, but it's always something we should strive for. Uh, always love the shows of Troy. Keep up the great work. You know, it's an interesting idea to add to add that kind of vulnerability testing to your CI chain. Mm. You know, just to run, this is what Troy was talking about, was there's all these tools out there, hack yourself first, right? Right, right. So getting those things as part of your automation chain so that you you not, you you can show that you're tipping over on your vulnerable to this script hack. Yeah. Right? All the, all the ones that, all the easy hacks should at least be tested for right off the bat. I think it's a worthy goal, John. That's a good idea. I, I like that. I'm, I got to think about that for a bit. Yep. Uh, so thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or via any of the social medias because we publish every show to Google Plus and Facebook. If we read your comment there, we'll send you a mug. And let me introduce Craig McKeechee. Craig is a Pluralsight author and trainer specializing in JavaScript libraries and frameworks. 
He has been a software developer for 15 years and earned the Microsoft Certified Solutions Developer Certification for three generations of Microsoft technology and still likes to wear his DCOM t-shirt from BD. Before .NET, that is. <laughs> <laughs> Craig is the author of the JavaScript Framework Guide, AngularJS, Backbone, and Ember, and blogs at funnyant.com, funnyant.com. Craig lives in Ohio with his wife and two boys. Welcome, Craig. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on the show. Pleasure to have you. So, uh, online payment systems. This is a subject near and dear to my heart. First of all, before we get into that, um, any clarification on webhooks with Azure that you know of? Not with Azure in particular. You know, how I first became you know, aware of this concept of webhooks was uh, Twilio. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that. Sure, oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and uh, I thought that was a really interesting use of it. I think, too, like I like to think of them as like events happening between websites. I yeah. think that's a good description. Um, you know, pub sub, like you guys said, but uh, right. can't really speak to the to the specifics in Azure, unfortunately. Okay. Well, anyway, since it works in ASP.NET, it works in Azure, obviously. Presumably, yeah. yeah. You know what I look at it is this mashup tool, right? Like, that's the big thing is you want to connect different unrelated apps together via their APIs and have as much automation as possible. This is obviously a, a mashup layer. And I mean, at the end of the day, it's really just, you know, web services. You're calling, you're doing an HTTP post to an endpoint. So, you know, if you can support surfacing a RESTful API, which clearly Azure can, then you could expose a webhook. Right. The, big, the big thing for me, and I think this is something that Azure addressed in their app services model, is protecting the accounts. You know, we're going to talk about payment systems. I brought up Troy's security talks because they're always compelling about it with that. But, you know, if you're... Call, you've got a, a, a tool that calls to an external service of some kind. You have to log in for that. Where does those credentials reside? And and the more that we have ask developers to manage that, the more ways we can be exploited. That you know that to me is the big whammy. Is how do I take care of my credentials? Just protecting that kind of information. Right. And nowadays, at least there's a lot of, you know, sort of open source auth toolkits that are coming out and web tokens are kind of overtaking, you know, using cookies for yeah. encrypting information. So we're headed in mm -hmm. the right direction, but there's a lot of ground to still be covered. I just really don't want to see usernames and passwords embedded in source code. Right. Makes me sad. So um, in terms of, uh, like I said, uh, this payment systems is near and dear to my heart because I've implemented them for years now using authorize.net. And, um, so just tell us a little bit about that, about the players involved. Like one thing that always confused me is you have a, a payment gateway uh, and then you also have a payment processor. And so there's two companies with their fingers in the pot. And, I don't mean fingers in the pie, you know, in a negative sense, but it's kind of true. I mean, can't one company just do everything for you? Do you have to have, and a sales guy calls you and then they're like trying to talk you into a rate and all of this stuff. It's like a big deal. Why right. can't I just, you know, take credit cards and be done with that? Yeah. And I think, you know, some of the newer services that we're going to talk about today, you know, try to address that problem and simplify things. But historically, there is this idea of a payment gateway which I like to think of like a credit card machine, like a virtual credit card machine. Right. They're going to actually take the card, talk to the credit card company, figure out, you know, if the transaction can go through and, 
you know, debit and credit the accounts. Yeah. And then there's this idea of a payment processor, um, which the more common term nowadays is merchant account, which right. is very strange that merchant account and payment processor are almost interchangeable terms right. because what I just tell you a payment gateway was, it's basically a payment processor, right? So I think that's why merchant account is becoming the sort of favored yeah. term. The way I like to think of a merchant account is an online bank account that will temporarily hold your money, hmm. you in this case being the merchant, until it is moved into an actual bank account. Yeah. And so the other thing that's strange is that when you deal with, if you're just, if you just have an online store and you don't have a physical store, they get very confused, don't they? They're like, well, I, I'm calling to set up your uh, terminal. I'm like, well, I don't have a terminal. I don't need a terminal, you know? <laughs> well, that's very odd. You know, they like scratch their head. They, to, in 2015, they still think you need a terminal. What is that all about? <laughs> Seriously. I mean, has that been your experience? I think it, it definitely has been just, just from, you know, we'll t- I think we'll talk about PCI compliance later is they, they don't seem to understand that there are all sizes of merchants online and offline. Yeah. And uh, so these older payment processors, you know, it just feels like they, they're, not, they're starting to get it, but it, they're, it's hard for them to leave behind this legacy of the way things used to work and the way things work under the hood. Like if I'm going to expose an API to one of my customers in a business application, I'm not going to you know, drag them through all the details of the fact that I've got, you know, three layers of software architecture there. Right. Um, and, you know, they're just not going to be aware of that. And, and that's the way I think a lot of these uh, newer payment solutions are heading, is um, hiding those details. At a, at a higher cost, usually, right? I mean, the, uh, the Square is a perfect example. They make it so easy to take credit cards. And there isn't all this... Um, you know, ceremony involved in setting up an account. I mean, you can get one at Best Buy, you know, and just put it on your iPhone or whatever. But they they charge more than 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 the merchant account does. Yeah, I mean, they ch- they're they usually charge more, and it's a simpler payment structure, right? right? So generally, the industry standard seems to be for these types of solutions like Braintree, which is now owned by PayPal, so we can say. PayPal, Braintree, and Stripe, we can say they have a fixed cost of 2.9% of the transaction uh, plus 30 cents fixed cost, right? And that's kind of consistent across the board. Now, if you do a lot of transactions, that costs more, right? But if you're, mm-hmm. if you're sort of in a medium ground, you know, uh, in terms of the, the tr- number of transactions you do, right. then these solutions start to look really good. And mostly because if you start building into that, the cost of uh, PCI compliance and, you know, going through an audit or, you know, um, complying in terms of reports and so forth with these things, then you you have to ask yourself, are you really saving money? Or, you know, when you look at the big picture, are you not? Um, The the payment gateway is also known for kind of um, historically at least finding lots of ways to sort of um, ding you with fees and so forth. Right. Um, you know, like uh, some examples of things I've heard of, you know, it's hard to say because the industry is changing so fast, would be like an address verification fee, a cancellation fee, a chargeback fee, a gateway fee, a monthly minimum fee, a, a because, statement fee. A because we feel like it fee. Yeah. You're right. not paying attention fee. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so... <laughs> It's, so it's really true. one of those things. Totally true. Yeah. It's 
totally that is true. Totally, totally true. And if you call them and say, "Hey, what's this? Paying attention? Not paying attention? I, I was paying attention. And what is this?" They'll go, "Oh, I'm sorry. We'll take that. Yeah, we'll off. just take that off." Yeah. It's like you it know, it's it's extortion, really. It is. It's it's it is a not paying attention fee, right? It's like <laughs> let's just see if we could slide this one past you. It's very scuzzy. It really is. Yeah. I know, but everybody does that. Yeah. Well, the, you know, you sort of got to crawl over these things on a routine basis, sort of figure out. This is why, and there are personalities, I've, and I work with a bunch of them, that are good at this. They, yeah. they go through, that are really great at digging through billing and so forth and picking out these things and then going and calling on all of them and yeah. finding out, hey, you know what? That's gone and that's gone and that was incorrect. And so, you know, it's really, it's just, it's frustrating though that you have to go through all of this. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Raygun Pulse. You know about Raygun, that error in crash reporting software. Well, they've just launched Pulse. It's a real user monitoring product that gives you real-time performance data and user insights, letting you understand exactly what's happening when users interact with your software. Never be left guessing. Raygun provides you with the answers to your performance questions. Having found over 10 billion bugs in customer apps with their crash reporting product, Raygun now lets you understand application quality like no one else. Over 30,000 developers worldwide can't be wrong. Try it out today with a no-risk 30-day free trial. Check them out at raygun.io. Are these sort of rack rates that... Th- I've, I've seen the 3%, the 2.93% number is like the number. That's what you're going to pay to take these kinds of transactions. Yes, it does seem like the the standard, you know, across the board because everybody wants to, you know... Be competitive and and compete, and I think PayPal sort of set that when they you right. know first came on the scene years ago, and so you know other players like Stripe that we're going to talk about and and Braintree have sort of followed in that in that vein. Can we um, pile on PayPal a bit because these other things that PayPal do that I think drives people completely wild, <laughs> right? The um, we've everybody's heard these stories. Mm. You know, you you got something going well, all of a sudden sales take off and they lock your account because right. that's too much money coming in too fast. I have heard this story, I don't know, countless times online. I don't know if it's the same person, but I seriously doubt it, right? It seems to happen a lot. Yeah, it does. It, 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 I don't know that a lot is fair because we never hear about the ones where it doesn't happen, right? But it's clearly it's happened. And the biggest issue, of course, is there's nobody to call. Like, if PayPal locks your account, it's very difficult to get any response out of them when there's a problem. Right. I I imagine the PayPal headquarters being this giant metal warehouse with one big steel door that's like 100 feet high and a knocker that you can't reach. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And to be fair to PayPal, they are the 10,000-pound gorilla in the space, right? So just like Microsoft has more security vulnerabilities yeah. compared to Apple. Well, why was that? You know, is it that is so it really, many uh, more hackers? You know, they exactly. are and they and PayPal has the largest collection of scars too. Every <laughs> exploit, everything you've ever run across happened to PayPal first. What you mentioned PCI compliance. Can you tell everybody what that is? Yeah, you know, I this is where I say I'm not a lawyer and can't pretend to be one and all yeah. that stuff, but uh you know, in general, it's the payment card industry got together all the big credit card um, companies, the Visa, MasterCards, American Express, Discovers, and so forth, and set up a proprietary information security standard for organizations, you know, that handle credit cards. So basically, you know, probably what I'm guessing used to happen is someone would get, you know, banned for not being very secure in their, you know, practices, 
um, and handling credit card information and and they would just go use another credit card vendor in the past, right? Now they've got this standard across the board that tries to get a consistent baseline for security practices in the industry. And but it it, it is an audit, right? Like you don't just get it. It, it ha- you have to be checked. Right. I, I, at a high level, I think, depending on your size, sometimes you can fill out a self-assessment questionnaire, right? Mm-hmm. And then other times you need to um, actually have the audit, depending on your size, right, to comply. I did read this very interesting thing. I'll, I'll throw a link to this um, uh, in the show notes. Um, but there's a, a guy, Ken Cochran, um, who built this company, Cashstar, and he's basically put all his, you know, He's done the self-research on the PCI compliance, right, and figured it out because he owned the company and they didn't have enough money to, you know, buy buy the consultants for PCI compliance. And he's put a lot of good information out there. But the part I found most interesting was that a low-end um, PCI compliance costs twenty to thirty thousand dollars a year. On average, it costs two hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars wow. a year. Wow! Wow! And uh, the top ten percent costs five hundred thousand dollars a year. And that's where you know when we go back to this boy, aren't they ripping you off with this 2.9% plus 30 cents? And it's like, well, when you start figuring those costs in, maybe not. So that's where you really have to do your homework to try to figure out what makes sense for your business. But clearly there are businesses processing enough transactions that you really would want to get a payment gateway and your own merchant account and so forth. Well, you know, the other thing about this, and funny, I was just talking to my daughter about this other day because my daughters are in their 20s now and getting credit cards and things. And we were talking about their risk of using a credit card and and looking at these exploits, and 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 made the point of where when a company uses an external transaction processor like that, they simply don't have the credit card numbers to lose, or at least they shouldn't. There's no reason to store them if you're using an external processors. So that is the level of data loss you don't have to deal with. Right, and it's very very interesting how. Um you know, some of the, I think, Stripe um, that we're going to talk about eventually uh, approaches this um, the way they don't get the credit card numbers on their servers at all. Mm. It's it's kind of technically interesting. Um, we can get to that in a bit. But yeah, the, the fact that, you know, remember the old days of PayPal, when it first came out, you're going off site to, to make your payment. I mean, now that's not always the case. But at first, you had to go off site so that none of the credit card information ever came to your servers right. or was on your site. Now, um, you, you know, there's some interesting new approaches with these, uh, the brain trees and stripes of the world um, to lowering your PCI compliance um, through like using web standards and so forth. Can we, can we just give, can you give us a laundry list of these guys and how they are similar and how they're different, these companies? Yeah, I can, I can try my best. The way I kind of organize it in my head is, I think, you know, one thing we haven't covered about merchant accounts is there's a dedicated merchant account and an aggregate merchant account that you'll read about online. The dedicated merchant accounts are what you're used to. These are the, um, let me list some. These are the Chase Payment Tech, National Payment Processing, uh, National Bank Car, those types of companies. And they're, they're there and you get your own account, right? So when you get, you, you have your own, temporary account to hold your money in and just to be clear these are u.s processing and u.s processing rules different countries different rules correct correct and then there's uh there's this idea of like sort of the paypals and stripes the world have created this aggregate merchant account where basically your money gets pulled in with other people's money so you have one merchant account and they manage it you know on your behalf 
but then you don't need a merchant account. You know, you don't have that extra set of fees because if you go the traditional route with like an authorized.net and you get a separate merchant account, yes, you can get your money faster. Yes, you can negotiate rates and so right. forth. Like you talked about, Carl, you, you can negotiate the fees and so forth, but you also have all the responsibilities. <laughs> yes, yes. Right. I mean, that's have, the trade when you get a traditional merchant account is, yes, you have a bank account. You can see the money flowing. You're also responsible for all the chargebacks. You're also responsible for, uh, you know, doing your own, getting your audits done, doing the all the fees. Like, it's you. You're it. Yep. Right, right. So I think that there's sort of, you know, in order to organize the companies, you know, all these different payment providers – um, you have to think about first, which side of the fence are they on? Are they on this payment gateway side or are they on the merchant account side, right? That's one sort of distinction. But then, you know, there's some companies that blur the line. Um, generally, the PayPals and Stripes are thought of as payment gateways in addition to providing you a merchant account. So they kind of do both. Um, another way to organize them that I like to think about is some specialize in just handling, say, subscription payments. So, right, you've got a software as a service application or a membership website of some sort and you want to handle recurring subscription payments. Uh, there's companies like Recurly and Chargeify that specialize in that sort of that recurring model. Uh, PayPal and Stripe and Braintree do support that as well, but th they kind of specialize and try to do value add in that space. And then there's it gets even more interesting when there's companies that are sort of giving you a sh full shopping cart solution and saving more of the data for you, et cetera. So it, it gets... Um, these are the, you know, two checkouts of the world and, and so forth. So, um, it goes all Shopify's, it goes all across the board. Awesome. I, I just the sense that you really don't want any of this stuff anymore, that, that it's worth the fees to just not have pain. Yeah, it's, it's generally my opinion, but you know, I represent more of a small business guy and working with small businesses, right? That the minor amount of savings you get from having your ded own dedicated merchant account is not worth the lengthy amount of time and trouble you have to go through to get one, right. as well as, you know, the, and the rate structures being complicated and all that jazz, right? The, so, the issue really comes down to margin. I mean, we're in the computing industry. It, our margins are pretty high. If you if you're selling a product that you only make five percent on, and you're paying three percent to have that process, that's hard. Right. You you'd prefer to make money when for 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 you to be charged money by the your payment processor when you make money because you're okay right. with that, right? But you're not okay with these fixed costs, these large fixed costs. Yeah. And well, and if you think you start thinking in terms of half of my product of, of this product is going to the transaction fee, that sucks. You know, yes. You're making 40% on the sale, so it's a $100 sale, and you're going to make $40. Giving up 3 bucks ain't a big deal. But if you were only going to make 5 bucks on that 100 and 3 of it goes to the payment processor, that's a big deal. Exactly. So, yeah, it depends on, depends on the product. You, you, we can't speak globally here. The, the product, the, what, how, what people sell and how they sell it matters a lot in terms of how this stuff's supposed to work. Yeah, and I think this is a good time to kind of explain how, you know, PayPal and Stripe and the brain trees of the world have kind of come into the game and, and tried to to provide a solution, uh, you know, for those smaller businesses and businesses that, you know, care have those slimmer margins. Absolutely. Go for it. How did how does this work? So essentially let's let's take Stripe as the example, because this is the 
the one I know really well, right, as a payment provider. There's no long application. It's very easy. You can just sign up online and almost immediately start taking payments. There's no contract. They try to make themselves extremely developer-friendly in terms of like having a you know nice RESTful API and a modern JavaScript API. Um, and but the most important thing is they significantly lower their the PCI compliance burden. Mm. Right. And the way they do that, I find really interesting as a web developer, right? Um, if you look closely at the HTML specifications, um, inputs that don't have a name attribute um, and get submitted on a form are not submitted to your web server. The data never hits your web server. Right. You never, you, you have no risk of handling it because you never handled it. Right. Uh, and then you think to yourself, well, how, how in the world does anyone get the data then? And, you know, what happens is your JavaScript library, the Stripe JavaScript library, for example, comes along and, and grabs the values out of those inputs using, you know, what you're used to with jQuery or JavaScript code and posts it to their servers. And their servers are, you know, of course, secured and go through audits and so forth and are totally PCI compliant, right? So it's a real clever way of kind of reducing your, P- it doesn't totally eliminate your PCI compliance burden, but it, it significantly reduces it. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is? Uh, it must be that happy time again. Yeah, time to announce our new financial service called Nickel and Dimeback. We, <laughs> <laughs> we basically go after all of your vendors to retrieve your nickels and dimes levied in the form of frivolous fees. Well, so how much does it cost? We only charge 115% of the money we collect, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> Don't forget that not a paying attention fee. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Hey, actually, it's time to give away a D-Experience subscription to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. D-Experience is a package from Developer Express, one of our sponsors. Let me tell you about it. Become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com slash superhero. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is Jeff Barnes. Congratulations, Jeff. Golf clap for you, sir. Yeah, Jeff just won the D-Experience subscription from Developer Express. That's a big pile of awesome from them. And if you don't know what we're talking about, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club, because we have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And now it's your turn, Craig. If you had $5,000 to spend on technology today, what would you buy? That's a great question. And to be honest, you know, I'm just not much of the gadget guy, right? So <laughs> I thought about this long and hard, and I was, you know, going to make up something that I, you know, kind of wanted, but it's just not me. So I think, you know, if I were to actually have $5,000 to spend on technology, I would, um, you know, go to htbox.org and mm. and probably donate the money because Aww. I think oh, that's I so feel awesome. like that is a great great cause and not enough Thanks. people know about it and you guys don't talk about it on the show you know a ton um, so I think humanitarian toolbox is our, our toolkit which is it uh, toolbox. toolbox toolbox okay I had it right the first time yeah um, is a is a great great 
cause. You know, it makes a lot of sense. We totally agree. Yeah, we find we we have discovered that it makes that the the NGOs of the world, especially in disaster response, when you donate money to them, they spend it on things they know. They spend it on blankets and water and tools and the, the stuff they need to get out and save lives during a disaster. They don't spend it on software. So yeah. we're doing the software. You, you donate money to us, we spend it on building software to help those guys be more efficient to save more lives. Awesome. And we're doing well. Things are good. The apps are coming along. That's so great. Um, getting back to Stripe, something, one that you mentioned uh, quite a lot here. I don't know anything about Stripe. How is that different from the other payment providers? You know, I think it's really comes down to like four, you know, big things. It's You don't have that long application process that you have with, um, you know, traditional payment gateways. Um, they don't, you know, ask you for your bank statements and all that jazz. You don't have these upfront fees um, that you're locking into like a contract, like a cell phone contract that you've got. Um, they're very developer friendly. Like we were just talking about with a nice JavaScript API, we can get into that more. Right. And they, they have this, uh, you know, nice JavaScript API and a RESTful API. It's what you'd expect like as a modern web application developer. Mm. It's not this, um, you know, you said you guys work with, I was looking um, at the API for authorized.net. Yeah. And their API literally says gateway, like the object is called gateway and you call the gateway, right? And so, you know, there's no, it's, you know, with Stripe or these more modern solutions uh, like Braintree, you know, you're just saying, hey, I want to charge, you know, it's objects you'd expect, you know, I want to make a charge, that sort of thing. Um, yeah, okay. So it's it's a lot, a lot of a, a lot more of a clean API, and they're abstracting away all this um, stuff that's going on under the under the hood. Interesting. So, I mean, what? So, what all can they take exactly? Like, these are different things you need to do, whether it's Visa or it's Mastercard, or you know, what's the diversity of charge that you can handle? There, you know, recently I looked at a lot of stuff. You know, it's usually between the stripes and the brain trees of the world, right? They they can take all the cards, right, um, that are common, I want to say all, but, you know, the number of currencies and, uh, you know, countries they support um, is very high. For a long time, Stripe, the knock against them when they were first, you know, they were sort of a startup four or five years ago. Mm. Um, they did not have the international, like it was only in the United States, right? right. But that's changed recently. If you look, you know, I, I looked recently and basically – they're they're now the winner in terms of most countries supported, but they're in beta with a lot of countries still. Mm, so you know, I think it's just a question of time um, before you know they're even surpassing uh, PayPal. But you know, this is you know this is not as big of an issue anymore. They even support uh, Bitcoin, which is interesting. So they're yeah. kind of um, you know ahead of the game in, in some ways uh, with with modern currencies like that. All right. So being the Canadian in the room, obviously, and I brought this up already, dealing with multiple countries is a big deal. They have different card rules. You guys still do, don't do chip much. You guys being the U.S. Uh, as a matter of fact, that's changing now. It is yep, changing. We're just finally. coming out with uh, chips. We're finally catching up to the rest of the world, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> but this handling of currency thing is not a small problem. You know, I get, I get paid the work that I do all over the planet in lots of different currency. Um, often U.S. and handling that well, like you can really get your margin eaten into by exchange rates. Mm -hmm. So 
do they does Stripe or services like it literally keep the foreign currency in one in separate accounts? So if you get paid in British pounds, they hold it in British pounds, or do they just automatically flip it to U.S. dollars? You know, I really don't know the internals of it. I've read some stuff that you know, there's some vendors that do a better job of sort of making it for the end consumer seamless. In other right. words, you know, they don't really see what magic's going on under the hood um, there. But I'm not familiar with, you know, in particular countries, you know, how things. Uh, yeah, and there's no way you could know that from within the U.S. I, a big thing is just being able to take a payment from a, in a foreign currency and know that it's going to work out. It's always a question of who, who, who gets the, who gets the loss. There's always going to be a percentage loss. It's a one or two percent or something. So it's like, I ship you a hundred dollars. Uh, I said I would pay you a hundred dollars U.S. And when you actually get it, do you actually get the hundred dollars? And when I go and look and say, well, what was my exchange rate at the time? You know, so I paid 120 Canadian dollars. You know, how good was that exchange rate? That's, that's where I think people get frustrated with dealing with international currencies. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of the payment providers, I don't know about Stripe specifically, push that back onto the consumer a lot of times. And that's right. where it really hurts, right? That's where you hear the screams, right? When people end up with fees just because they live somewhere, right? Right. And then they call you, right? Like they, they, they're they going to call you as the vendor and go, why did you charge my card so much? And, exactly. and all you've seen is the $100 you th- were expecting to see. Uh, it's a, it's an interesting problem. How weird does it, I don't know how much you've done of this, how weird does it get with foreign cards in terms of a- handling card numbers or and different rules? Do you have to actually do anything there? Or is that just stuff that Stripe absorbs? You know, Stripe does absorb a lot of it, but what makes it even better, um, there's an open source library that's actually published by Stripe, but it's not a part of their official product. So if you're taking card, say you're not using Stripe, you're just using, you know, Braintree or whatever company, they've created a jQuery uh, payment plugin, um, literally called jQuery payment, right, that does things like detects card types, um, does input masks for different cards, um, and so forth. So imagine, for example, have, you've probably seen on some sites this really nice interface where you start to enter a card number and it figures out that you're entering a Visa versus a MasterCard or American, yeah. American Express. Visa, Visa start with five, MasterCard starts with four, Internet, American Express starts with three. It's sad I know this. Yeah, and it's it's funny because you'll see like, you know, on Stack Overflow, there's a post and somebody's like, oh, you know, you can do this, you know, it's simple rules like like you just said, Richard, right? Yeah. And uh, it gets complicated pretty fast when you actually look at like the source code for the jQuery payment plugin, right? To cover all those use cases. Oh, yeah. And I, I so I, I, you know, lean towards using something like an open source library, even though the yeah, problem Don't seems, write this yourself. It's right. known. <laughs> right, right. Um, but I, I think that's one way, you know, that I've seen things get a lot better. But it just, it also kind of shows you, just like you said, how big the problem is, right? Like this is not, a, if you're supporting, a lot of countries, you've got a lot of um, a lot of use cases there to cover. Yeah, and it, and and the list just goes on and on. And there are other kinds of cards, and the debit cards especially. I mean, they they're different depending on the country. Just exactly how they work. Exactly uh, taking taking debit cards versus credit cards. You know, it's it's uh, it's challenging, right? Yeah, absolutely. And in the end, it's just some fees. So what happens when things go wrong? 
So somebody has scraped credit card numbers off of a site or bought fake ones and they run stuff through, you try and buy stuff with you with a stolen card. It, who who deals with that? What's the path? So And the initial transaction is going to go through. Stripe accepts it. In theory, you've gotten your money. Now what? Right. Well, usually what happens is, you know, we talked about how when you've got your own merchant account, you can get your money a little faster, right? Um, usually more like two days versus seven days. So that the when that money sits in that merchant account for the two to seven days, What's happening is, you know, one of those companies, I think it's more on the merchant uh, account side, is the, one of those players is basically, you know, going through their internal audit procedures to try to figure out, detect fraud, basically, right, yeah. and determine refunds and things like that, right? It also plays into the refund game. Mm-hmm. But that's why you don't just immediately get the money in your account because you, we need to, they need time to figure out, you know, fraudulent activity and refunds and so forth. What does the developer landscape look like in specifically in .NET? Is there a .NET library for most of these things? I know there is for, for authorized.net. It's basically a, and most of them are just, you know, simple rest calls and things, but does it, does a library help? Yeah, a library definitely does help. And there's several out there, you know, for .NET, C sharp. Um, the one I really um, liked when I was working on my Pluralsight course on Stripe was um, Stripe.net. Um, it's run by a developer, Jamie Davis, um, and it's it's definitely you know been around for a while. Keeps getting updated as the Stripe API gets updated and so forth. But it's not officially supported by Stripe. So I mean, and of course they point people to it and so forth. But they support Ruby, Python, Java, Node, Go, and iOS but they look to the open source community for a .NET API library. I think it's mm-hmm. kind of worth, you know, stepping back for a second just to understand, um, you know, the big architecture around Stripe and what's happening um, mm-hmm. in order to kind of figure out, you know, where a Stripe.NET fits into things, yeah. um, if that makes sense. Um, so generally you have like three, you know, computers or sets of computers uh, communicating with in Stripe's architecture. You have a client desktop computer running a web browser. You've got your application's web server. And then there's a server hosting Stripe's RESTful API. Obviously, it's going to be more than one server, but you get the idea. Sure. Um, so working with Stripe involves using either of its two client-side JavaScript libraries, Checkout.js or Stripe.js. And these are basically... Um, you know, depending on how much you want done for you, is which which one you choose, right? And but ultimately, that posts the credit card information, such as the card number, the expiration date, and the CVC code directly to Stripe's API, as we talked about, without it ever hitting your servers. Yeah. So Stripe's API then stores that information and returns you back a single-use token that represents the card. Okay, so you get mm-hmm. a token back, and that's what you post to your server. That token represents the card. But only for that transaction, right? But only for that transaction. And there's a public-private key thing going on so that, you know, if someone else got that token and tried to charge it, they would need to know your private key in order to actually charge the card. I got you. Well, that's very cool. Yeah. So then the browser, like, posts that single-use token to, you know, your web server, whatever that is, mm-hmm. running ASP.NET, presumably. Um, your web server then calls Stripe's web API to charge the card, which is represented by the token. So if you think about that, Stripe's 
API is, you know, your normal modern RESTful web API that returns you JSON, right? Mm -hmm. It would be possible to call Stripe's API by making a manual HTTP request. You could use system.net.http web request sure. and then deserialize the JSON response into a .NET class. But I really liked, you know, I tried it both ways and I really like using Stripe.net, which does that work for you and gives you back a strongly typed .NET object when you're working with the Stripe API on the server, that's which cool. is where you actually kind of charge the card. Yeah, and that that's... that. That's pretty much what we're doing with authorized net, except that we don't have a, uh, you know, separate API. But just like you said, it's a REST API. You make a call, you deserialize it, and everything works fine. Yeah. And is the is the encryption just the SSL? There's no additional encryption involved for the data you're moving around. Correct. So they're they're you know they're counting on transport layer security to be in place. Um, one interesting thing to think about is. You know, when I first started using Stripe, especially on my own personal sites where I didn't really want to set up a certificate, I'm thinking, well, hey, maybe I don't need HTTPS, you know, like I don't need to serve this over HTTPS because I'm not, this credit card information is going to Stripe, you know, it's API, you know, right. over um, over a secure layer. So why do I even need it, right? Well, there's a couple reasons that you do, you know, generally Stripe still recommends it. One is, you know, middleman attacks, like someone getting in there and, and getting to the information. So that kind of reduces your attack surface for middleman attacks. But the other, I think, more prominent reason is just sort of trust from your end users, right? right like sure. if they don't see that, they're, they're, they're probably going to go away. I know I would, right? I would so, yeah. so that's, that's kind of the. Well, the and it's there. no, you know, we just had this conversation and I think we did it to Don and Rocks, right? Which is, there's no reason not to just use SSL all the time now. The, our, the CPUs and web servers are laying around doing nothing most of the time. Right. So, you know, encrypt all the things. It does seem like everything's headed that way. And uh, .NET Rocks.com is, has got an HTTPS layer, even though, you know, it's not the default, but you can turn that on if you want to. Not that there's any sensitive data going across, but when you do sign up for the fan club, we, for the longest time, weren't, weren't using HTTPS. And now we are, of course. And, you know, the, the thinking on that was, eh, you know, it's, it's data that nobody really can do anything with you're answering some questions about you know what uh your what kind of technology you use and that kind of stuff and who cares whatever but uh but somebody pointed out and this is a really good point that people tend to you know log in and create a password that they might share you know so it's worth it yeah exactly and the, the other thing to consider if you're thinking hey, maybe we should do this but it's not quite worth the effort yet is I've seen definitely seen hints on the search engine optimization blogs, the SEO blogs saying, you know, Google is headed and hinting that you should do this on all your pages now, yeah. which means that you're getting a bump in your search engine rankings just by, you know, putting your site under SSL. Right. Um, I mentioned webhooks at the beginning of the show and we talked about them. How can uh, a webhook help with Stripe in particular, but maybe all of these things? Right. Well, there's just some things that happen you know, in the course of taking a transaction, obviously you're going to charge the card real time and so forth. Um, but I think the easy way to think about this, this easy scenario that I cover in the in my plural site course is subscription payments with software as a service. You probably are going to give the user a free trial for, you know, at least 15, maybe 30 days, you mm. know, to your software. And you're not going to charge them right away. But, you know, you need an event to come back to you 
aka a webhook, to come back to you and say, okay, now it's time to charge that card. Stripe's well aware of that. You could keep track of it on your server, but you know they're providing subscription-type services to you by saying, oh, okay, now it's time to charge this card, or the trial has ended, is about to end. Send the user an email and let them know you know, um, that the trial is about to end and they're going to be charged or send them an invoice once the payment succeeds for that month's, you know, um, transaction. So um, that's really where, you know, they figure in a lot. Um, they can figure in in simple scenarios as well. Like if you just took a payment and you want to send somebody a receipt, um, you could use a webhook to be notified that the payment succeeded, send them, you know, a receipt for their transaction. Okay. One really interesting thing that comes up when you work with webhooks is testing, right? Another, or, you know, even debugging, I guess, might be a better word, mm. right? Because, so you would really like Stripe to send you a real um, event, right? So that right. you could test it, right? And see if this code is really going to run that's, you know, it's basically an HTTP endpoint. You're getting a post and you want to know, does your code have all the error handling and the null checking in it to handle this? Or is you know this going to fail? You know when I when I put it out in production, um, one some great things. There's a couple different uh, tools like this, but there I ran into a tool called Ngrok that mm -hmm. creates like secure tunnels to your local host server. Mm -hmm. So basically, and Stripe is very aware of um, production and test environments, right? You could just flip a switch and create a test environment, so you can send yourself test webhooks for like a charge succeeded, have it hit you know a port that you um, temporarily expose, you know, which kind of gets routed back through Ngrok's server yeah. um, and then comes back to your local server. So it's basically like secure tunnels to a local server, you know, going through their web server, which in the end of the game lets you debug through your webhook code. Um, and you'll definitely hit a wall there if, if, you know, you haven't experienced that before because the webhook needs to come from, you know, out on the internet. Have you had the moral dilemma that is Bitcoin? <laughs> should, I'm should not sure you, how to answer that I, question. You know, it's a it's a loaded question, I know, but Bitcoin is one of those things that, you know, it's a great idea in general, but the the way it's been implemented or the who has implemented it mostly crooks, right? I mean, what what do you think about taking Bitcoin? You know, personally, I I I've got to be honest, I just don't think about it a ton. Maybe it's a you know, I know it's a very popular topic online with with techies and so forth. Um, it's popular with a very small niche of the world. Yeah, <laughs> we, you know, we have to live in the echo chamber. We hear about it way more than the average mortal hears right. about it. You know, I, it's, I it's sort of voodoo one to big, ninety nine percent of the world. One big practical problem with Bitcoin is that the the value of it changes by the second. So you may put an order through, and you know. By the time uh, the the company gets around, you know, I'm talking as a consumer. You may put an order with Bitcoin. By the time the company gets around processing it, you may owe them more money. Well, I mean that's true of all exchange rates, really. It's yeah, I suppose you're right. But it seems how Bitcoin is so much more volatile. Like you know, when you when you're lo you lock in the rate, right? When you buy something at a certain price, okay, that's the price. But Bitcoin is something that is so volatile. How uh, how do you handle that? I mean, it's been pretty steady in the past six months. It's been between two thirty and two fifty U.S. dollars for a Bitcoin since more or less the beginning of the year. 
Okay. As opposed to in early 2014 when it was like 1100 US dollars per yeah. Bitcoin. So it's kind of settled down. But, you know, this, you've got the exa- you're describing a, a very important problem, Carl, that as soon as you deal with international currencies, and te- theoretically, Bitcoin's an international currency, you know, you, how do you price something to someone in the UK? Right. Uh, and get paid the amount that you expect to get paid. You sort of have to have a real time price based on the amount of your currency that you wish to get for it. Well, I think people just start listing stuff is like, you're going to be paying US dollars. I know you're in, in GBP, but right. you're going to, you're going to pay me a hundred US dollars, whatever that is at the time. Yeah. And so some of these, uh, some of these things are, are new innovations, but are there like Bitcoin? Are there other? Things that are coming down the pike, innovation-wise, that we might want to look out for. Yeah, I mean, even right after the day I published my Pluralsight course on Stripe, I get an email from Stripe, you know, the general email saying we just released this feature called Relay, and I looked at it a little bit, and it looks fairly interesting. I it's uh, it's centered around purchases in apps and on Twitter. So if you're in a you know mobile app of some sort mm-hmm. and you just want to be able to you know quickly make a purchase, this doesn't sound like anything new, but I think that people are starting to get it right now. There are some apps like ShopStyle and Sp- an app called Spring that are introducing like buy buttons right into the interface of the apps mm. so that people can purchase you know products. Um, companies like Warby Parker, you know, who makes the fancy glasses and Sense and Teespring are already using like the relay feature of Stripe um, to try to, um, you know, make purchase more of an instantaneous thing on your phone. Right. Well, and isn't that like one click on Amazon for that matter? It's just like, make sure this payment chain is all set up. So when I click this, just do it. Exactly. I mean, people don't want to, I'm sure you guys have tried to type in a credit card number on a phone or. It's not a lot know, of fun. It's not. It's it's just not. So Craig, let's talk a little bit about the difference of these companies. What have you seen? You know, um, when you, can you elaborate a little bit, the differences, I want to make sure I understand. So I'm going to go get a, an account set up with one of these services. What's the process that that company goes through to sort of identify me and how do I know that they're legit as well? Like, how do we sort of get a sense that everybody's real? Right. I mean, one, I think, hesitation that a lot of people have, maybe what you're really getting at, you know, when dealing with these companies is like, can I trust them? You know, these all, they've got interesting names like Chargeify and, you know, right. Recurly and Stripe. And-, and they're holding your money for a week, right? If they disappear that week, you've got a problem. Right. Wouldn't it be better to trust the company with Chase Paymentech in the front of the name? You know, that sort of thing. Yeah. And I, I think that when you really look into this, though, there it's surprising how big um, some of these companies have already gotten to be. Um, for example, Stripe has $190 million in funding to date, basically, uh, as a startup. Their valuation is currently at like $3.57 billion. That's um, a lot of money. They have investors like, you know, that all the big companies you hear about, the Facebooks of the world and so forth, like Sequoia Capital and Dreesen Horowitz. What's really interesting is there's a couple Stripe investors, Elon Musk and Peter Thiel, who mm-hmm. who were uh, PayPal. Yeah, part uh, of the PayPal uh, mafia. Exactly. So, you know, it's, uh, it's definitely, you know, at least, and PayPal recently bought the Braintree of, you know, Braintree, which is, uh, was Stripe's major competitor. Right. So, you know, these, these companies are clearly you know, large and legitimate and I think, you know, worthy of 
it's a good practice trust. when you go to a site like Stripe and you see who all these investors are, they then go to the investor site and make sure they reference them back. Just, you know, do a little bit of re- referral both ways. Exactly. But the other side of this is how do they know you're not a fly-by-night operation? Like, what do they need from you to take you on as a vendor? You know, in my personal experience, um, all I needed was, in, you know, with Stripe was an EIN, like, a, you know, employer identification number. Now, at that point, you know, you got to think about how much risk are they, you know, really taking on at that point, you know, and I think it's probably a game of, you know, how many transactions am I doing? You know, sure. in, in my case, I was doing very small transaction amounts, you know, online. Um, you know, I probably wasn't raising any flags, but I'm sure if I started, you know, charging well, they kind of hold cards, all the cards because they've actually got the money until they finally release it to you. Right. And they've got seven days, you know, to to check on these things and let people, yeah. you know, raise a stink about that fact. But yeah, it is it is a lot um, less stringent than the other side of the world. But I'm guessing it's it's less stringent for the the smaller players in the world and for the the bigger players. I'm sure they're, you know, still getting to the point where. Um, I think, you know, when, when Carl was mentioning the cost, I'm guessing that what happens behind the scenes is, you know, it's 2.9% plus 30 cents per transaction. Um, but for, you know, for the average everyday person, but once you get to a certain amount of transactions, um, and, you know, Stripe can use you on their site to, you know, like take Kickstarter uses Mm, Stripe, for example, do you Mm. think, I'm guessing they're not paying 2.9% plus right. 30 cents. Well, it says right on their website, movie more than 80000 a month, you should call. Well, and you know, you should. And this is not just for merchant accounts, but for credit card accounts too. Anybody smart will be calling your credit card company every month and saying, hey, you know, I'm a good customer. I always pay my bills. Can you either up my credit or reduce my interest rate or both? Um, you'd be amazed at what you can get just by asking. Well, uh, let's talk about uh, briefly about your plural site course, Stripe Fundamentals with ASP.NET MVC. Uh, that's on plural site. You should just go there and check it out. Is it and anything you want to tell us in particular about that course? I think, you know, w- one thing I put out there, and I hopefully we'll see this in the comments for this episode, but I kind of felt like um, when I was looking for a course idea, um, to do on Pluralsight, I looked at the the user voice forums on Pluralsight, hmm. and there was clearly a lot of people like in need of courses around payments, and uh, you know, and these newer payment providers like Stripe and so forth. So, you know, I was trying to, you know, kind of respond to that need out in the community. So, um, so yeah, that, that's that's all I would say is that you know, if you have an interest in this, please, I know. Almost everybody and their brother nowadays has a Pluralsight account. Yeah. Go, go check it out. You know, send send a signal out there that we need courses to cover. You know, these things that you guys need at work every day. It's right. not just the hot new technologies. All right, Craig Magici, it's been fun talking to you today, and thanks a lot. This is great information. Thanks for having me on, guys. All right, we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios. 
a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and of course in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.